You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 11th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, a special appearance from our beloved America's editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, for a roundup on what's been a disruptive week in Latin America and a look ahead to important elections around the corner. We'll also hear from Chris Cermak, our acting affairs editor, for a closer look at one of his home countries, Austria, which after an iffy couple of years has this week been making the news for more of the right reasons. Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Remella, will unpack what a disagreement over one of the world's most famous drawings says about the power of art artefacts in international diplomacy. And, yes, there's more. Our fashion editor, Jamie Waters, will join me to ask if private rental might be a shortcut to the snazzy wardrobe of your dreams. That's all ahead. I'm Tom Edwards. Monocle's House View starts now. And a warm welcome to today's programme. I'm joined, first of all, by Monocle's America's editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, and culture correspondent and Latin America broadcast linchpin, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. No sniggering, Ed. For I, a like look. The, I like the tongue, though. That's what I was <laughs> like. I, listen, I work very hard at getting ready for this. Uh, we're looking at LATAM affairs. And, Ed, I'll come to you, uh, first of all. Good to have you with us in London. Thank you. As the opening gambit. But let's start with Ecuador. Um, serious upheaval, to put it lightly, over the past few weeks. Um, if a government relocates, you know, generally speaking, <laughs> things are not all in good order because of violent protests. What exactly has been happening? Indeed, you're right. The government's uh, moved to Guayaquil from Quito. Basically, a week of protests that started, broadly speaking, uh, over austerity measures imposed by the government of Lenin Moreno. Uh, basically, the decision by that government to uh, get rid of subsidies to, fu- uh, to fuel that have uh, irked uh, a lot of people uh, around the country, most notably um, indigenous groups that make up around 8% of the population. Their argument being that uh, raising fuel prices is only going to make uh, the economic inequality uh, in the country that tends to affect uh, indigenous groups more than non-indigenous groups, even worse. So uh, they've been protesting. There's been accusations of heavy handedness uh, from the police. Um, indigenous groups are claiming at least five people have died. The government says that number is only uh, two. And then on top of all of that, really, a kind of swirl of accusations and misinformation. Just recently, uh, one government minister saying that um, 18 people were detained at uh, Quito Airport and the majority of them were Venezuelans. There's accusations from the government that uh, Venezuela is somehow embroiled in this whole mess and they are uh, wanting to destabilise uh, the regime of Moreno, who is, broadly speaking, more more uh, conservative or more sort of market-friendly, rather, mm. than his predecessor. Now, Ed, at the risk of asking you an impossible-to-answer question, you've described a situation that is fast-moving, it's rather fluid, and there's a great deal of uncertainty, claim and counterclaim, as so often. Um, is it too early or is it impossible to have a bit of a read on potential outcomes here is there, uh, you know, a stabilising effect? What could prompt that? Or does this feel a bit like, you know, as so often in the region, a bit of a powder keg? 
Well, it's kind of, and we're going to talk about Argentina, and strangely in both of these two cases, there is the sort of figure of the International Monetary Fund that is looming large. Um, uh, Ecuador reached an agreement with them back in February uh, for uh, a cash injection of $4.2 billion. And that's sort of, in a way, the the bogeyman, you know, the, the groups mm. are against this because obviously the IMF then dictates that various austerity measures need to be taken in order to save money and put the country on the right path. It really just depends on how good the negotiations are going to be over the next few days, whether these uh, indigenous groups are prepared to listen to the government. The government has tried to table certain measures like debt restructuring for companies that are struggling, uh, but it's not been enough for these groups. So it really will depend on both sides being willing uh, to to listen to one another, otherwise this could really escalate even further. Uh, the insights of Ed Stocker. Uh, did you ever spend? Obviously, you were based in Buenos Aires in Argentina, which we'll come to in just a moment for a while. Did you ever spend any much time in in Quito or Ecuador? I've only been a few there. Jaunts. I've only been there once, but just I, the yeah, one time. Just the one time. It's good though, isn't he, Fernando? He knows what he's talking <laughs> about. Uh, let's go to Argentina though, where with elections at the end of the month, El Pais reports the release of prisoners linked to Cristina Kirchner's previous administration. Is this related to the possibility of electoral success for Kirchner, perhaps, Fernando? Well. I think, you know, I would be very surprised, actually, if, if Macri will pull off a, a re-election because, you know, frankly, the the economy in Argentina is in such a state. Poverty levels rose to 35%, which you can say anything you want about Nestor Kirchner and Kristina Kirchner. But during their presidency, there's been some, you know, economic crisis, a lot of corruption scandals. But the poverty level never reached at that point. And when Macri was elected, it was such a hope for a lot of Argentinians, you know, uh, you know, because he had this more kind of centrist image, uh, more market friendly. But I mean, he wasn't uh, a very good president in those terms. So I think that makes it very easy for Alberto Fernandez, the main candidate of opposition, to win. And Cristina Kirchner, very smart as usual, she was not the leading candidate because she knows she's a bit tainted. She knows she has her like I don't know, twenty-five percent of the vote. But then she'll get the moderates as well with Alberto. Um, Ed, let me ask you. Obviously, you've got the uh, the benefit, I suppose, of your you, you know this long period sort of watching this uh, country mm-hmm. either you know incredibly close up or, or from your your station in the US. What kind of mess will whoever the next president is be looking to clean up? I mean, a big mess um, down to the economy, as Fernando was sort of alluding to um, the. Uh, situation isn't great. And I think really uh, the reason that Mauricio Macri is going to lose or it looks like he will lose, he he may have an amazing turnaround in the next few weeks. But it, it really is down to the fact that the, the, the economy has been struggling. Again, as Faye was saying, you know, inflation is over 50%. Um, you know, the peso is just... Losing value, there's been a devaluation, obviously, that was implemented by Macri. Um, But again, as I said earlier, the fact that, you know, Macri had to go to the IMF, which is a serious bogeyman. If we think it's a bogeyman in Ecuador or in Argentina, it is hated by some sectors of society because one can't forget the 2001 economic crisis, which, of course, led to a huge bailout from the IMF and years of struggle. And so this idea of going back to the IMF is very unpopular uh, with vast swathes uh, of the country. I don't know how Argentina gets out of this sort of cyclical mess that it Mm. doesn't seem to be able to get out of. I remember from the time that I lived there, people used to say, um, 
sort of in a very sort of negative way that, you know, Argentina tended to have an economic crisis every 10 years. They were sort of just waiting for it, a sort of uh, a sort of world weary expectation that this is just the way things are in Argentina. And sadly, uh, at the moment, that sort of seems to be repeating itself. I'm not saying it's going to be as as terrible as in, you know, 2000, 2001, but uh, the dire economic situ- situation is really how this election is going to be defined. Well, speaking of the sort of strangely cyclical nature of Argentine politics, Fernando, what about Kirchner? Because, you know, this is something we've talked about so often around this table here. Um, a divisive figure, to say the least. Where where do we stand in terms of her popularity, both within and I and I guess also importantly without Argentina? If you look at the international community, is there an investment in a potential winner? Is there someone that you know the broader world would prefer to see? In a sense, I've been wondering because I, I think Mauricio Macri is that kind of president uh, that is more respected abroad than in Argentina because he always you know he looks like you know a statesman he travels i think he has a fairly good relationship with many leaders around the world uh so and, and i think a lot of people you know they fear the return of the populist measures of kirchner even though i don't think this will happen because this time she has a very different character as the main uh, candidate it will be very interesting to see uh, how the relationship with brazil will be with bolsonaro because bolsonaro said clearly that he didn't want uh, you know alberto fernandes and cristina to win then I think it would be a terrible relationship between Brazil and Argentina. But yeah, let's uh, let's wait and see who's going to win. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, Macri is market friendly. So he tends to make investors and organizations like, like the IMF and the World Bank extremely happy compared to someone like Cristina Fernandes de Kirchner. She's a Fernandes as well, just to make things confusing. Yeah. Um, you know, who are worried about populist measures. What is super interesting about this election is that we haven't seen that much of her. She's really been uh, keeping a low profile. Like Fernando was saying, she is tainted and she's aware of that. She's been spending a lot of time in Cuba where her daughter is actually uh, ill and spending time there. So she's been traveling a lot to Cuba. Um, What's also interesting is that... uh, Fernandez, uh, Alberto that is, has been sending people to the US to sort of try and shore up the image of the next government. He's trying to allay the fears of investors, of business people to say, look, this is going to be a moderate government. We're not going to be the same as under Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner and the populist measure. So I think a little bit of image smoothing is happening at the moment as well. Uh, gentlemen, fantastic to hear insights from both of you today. That's Monocle's Ed Stocker and Fernando Augusto Pacheco here on Monocle's House View and we'll be right back after this. Next up today, we're joined by Monocle's new acting affairs editor, Chris Sermat. Chris, welcome to you. Thank you very much. Good, Good to have you here. in the studio. You sound surprised to be here, but here you are. Uh, regular <laughs> listeners, of course, will have spotted or heard Chris already, looking over some newspapers on the briefing. Um, and Chris, you're going to talk to us a little bit about Austria, but tell us first why you are particularly well-placed to do exactly that. So my background's a little bit complicated and mixed, but my father is Austrian, um, so I do speak uh, German, I should say, with a bit of an Austrian accent. My mother's American, so a bit of a mix there. But yes, I thought, uh, you know, we talk enough about the States, and Austria has been, especially in the news, it feels like this week, 
and on Monocle's various channels. So it was a good it was a good opportunity to introduce myself and talk about one of my home countries. It is exactly one of one of your home countries. I feel I feel envious, particularly being <laughs> being in Britain at the moment. But that we won't get into. Let's talk a bit about Austria because actually a lot of the press, if we're looking at Austrian politics in particular, maybe not super positive over recent times. But things may be shifting, and obviously there are a few, as you mentioned, sort of very Monocle friendly reasons why uh, we, we're interested in particular. Does it feel a bit like Austria? is, I don't know, showing a bit of a new, more positive face to the world, perhaps? Yeah, I think there's various ways that we can talk about that. But when it comes to the politics, it's been um, in the eyes, certainly even the international community, a rough few years uh, for Austria. I think they've become most famous, or, you know, the chancellor that they had, Sebastian Kurz, first of all, became most famous for shutting down, um, essentially stopping the refugee crisis by shutting down the Balkan route back in 20. Uh, 16. Um, and then we've had this tremendous crisis uh, within the Freedom Party, the sort of far-right party that he was in coalition with, which had this huge scandal of a video that came out of their leader uh, essentially uh, talking openly, quite openly about corruption that he was considering doing with, uh, with Russians. Um, so now we've had an election there. Um, and what's fascinating to me is, that, to put it in an interesting positive light, it's the same person, Sebastian Kurz, who came out right on top. He sort of stole a lot of the votes from the far-right Freedom Party after their scandal. So now he's back in a position to form a government in Austria, and he might do almost a chameleon-like swing from you know the Freedom Party on the far right to the Greens. And that's that's everything you know. Everything that Austria is talking about right now is: Would this actually be possible for somebody who seemed to be very far right to then go to the Greens for a coalition? Well, and I guess in some senses one should welcome such uh, shape shifting and and look at how it's challenging preconceived wisdom about the structure of the sort of uh, you know political spectrum from from one side to the other. And that may be true. Or is there something a bit alarming about that? Someone who can shift and wax and wane like that? It, I don't know. Is there cause for concern when someone can, as you called it, chameleon-like, a, a reinvention? I guess as long as we view it with a certain degree of healthy scepticism, it's probably okay. Yeah, I think I think it should be viewed with some healthy scepticism. I mean, for me, it's interesting to compare it, say, with uh, with a place like Italy, because Italy also had... A similar shift recently of uh, you know the the five star movement kind of first uh, having a coalition with the far right and then now moving a bit further to the left again. What the interesting thing maybe you know as much as you can have skepticism about it, the interesting for, thing for me about Austria is in the case of Italy, say the five star movement struggled for a long time to rein in Salvini and the far right, if you will. They sort of took all the oxygen out of the room, if you will, Salvini, and he became the main figure. And the, you know, the, the five-star movement, even though they're now back in government, um, lost a lot of support as a result of that. Sebastian Kurz I find fascinating as a figure because he has somehow managed to keep the far right at bay during this coalition. And there was obviously a scandal that brought the far right down in some ways. But even before that, he's sort of taken on and that's this is where it gets interesting, right? How far should he go? Should he have not gone in his rhetoric, in his policies? He's sort of taken the the wind out of the sails of the far right by being quite anti-immigrant um, in in much of his rhetoric. It it's meant that he's been the central figure and stayed the central figure of Austrian politics instead of the far right, and that gives him now this opportunity to try and swing in the other direction again. And I do find that fascinating. One of the things that he said. Uh, quotes he gave about cooperating with the Greens. For example, migration, he feels, might not be much of an issue because he sort of united it and he just said, well, 
nobody is in favor of illegal, illegal immigration, and nobody's in favor of people drowning in the sea either. So I think we can come to an agreement on this. He's certainly a capable politician, if nothing else, and a, and a man who can work the, work the room and work the space well. Um, so politically, things may be back on the rails for Austria. Watch where I'm going, Chris. Segway alert to the oh, rails. Der Nachtzug, a little bit of German as well for you. Uh, the night train. Tell us about this. We've heard our own Tyler Brule, uh, an absolute sort of, you know, a love letter to the, to the to travelling by rail overnight. And for those of us who've done it, I've actually gone to Berlin on night train. And there's something fantastic about it. Um, what's happening by night on the rails in Austria? So this is an interesting story, I think, because it's an opportunity maybe that Austria has seen. And uh, those who have heard Tyler would have heard about this. But um, yes, it's an opportunity that Austrian has taken when essentially Germany's Deutsche Bahn shut down its overnight operations. And Austria has kind of swooped in and said, well, we see an opportunity here. Maybe we can, you know, make make the night train sexy again. And they're doing a tremendous overhaul, which I do think, uh, which I also agree makes sense. Because like you, I've done this, I've done this trip, and my experience of the German ones was not as positive. I did a trip from Berlin to Frankfurt on the trains, and it was one of these where I was in, you know, a carriage with six other people, and it was all quite dingy, and it was an old train, and I just, <laughs> it wasn't this sort of glamorous experience that you imagine. So I'd welcome a bit of an overhaul uh, from the Austrians on this, and I think I don't know, maybe it fits with sort of the old imperialistic, if you will, ambitions that Austria once had to now sort of go back to the old uh, the old night train. There's certainly a romance about it that we can all get yeah. on board with. Wow, exactly. another pun. I'm on, I'm on fire today. Um, let me just ask you very briefly uh, about uh, another sort of anniversary. 150 years of the postcard. And what intrigues me about this, Chris, in particular, is that I never knew this was an Austrian invention. And yet, maybe I was right, because... Was it, was it nicked from across the, the... I like these origin stories. Tell us briefly about this one. So, yes, origin stories are always complicated, aren't they? Every country likes to claim a certain amount of fame for, for different uh, inventions that have been created. And I'd say Austria is no different. Um, I find it interesting because in this case, they yes, they in some ways you could say they stole the idea from the Germans. It was a German postal worker who first proposed uh, essentially sort of mass-producing, publishing postcards and having this as a souvenir. The idea of a postcard itself had already existed as well, like the format, but nobody had done it as a souvenir or something that you send around through the post. And a year before uh, this 150-year anniversary, the Germans decided or thought and thought long and hard, and this postal worker was like, I'd love this idea, we have to do it. There was a huge discussion in the German Postal Service, and they decided, no, it's too controversial, we're not doing it. <laughs> A year later, Austria did, well, we'll take it. We're happy to do this. We find this a great idea. Austria-Hungary in those days. Um, and they went for it. And then the next thing you know, various other countries say, oh, that's a lovely idea. We're going to take that as well. And you had it in, uh, you know, it moved to Canada and uh, Germany eventually as well and uh, other countries in Europe. So it just spread very quickly. But the Austrians were the ones that got there first. There you go. Well, I think our listeners out there, why don't, why don't you uh, put pen to paper, send a postcard to our own Chris Summack here at Midori House. I guarantee you he'll write back to everyone he receives. Every is, single is that one. a grade? Every single one. Of course. There you go. He's not crossing his in fingers. In postcard form. He's not crossing his fingers or anything. Uh, Chris, <laughs> good to hear from you. Uh, in just a moment, we'll have a word on Monocle's House View from our fashion editor.
Now, fast fashion rightly picks up a lot of stick for its deplorable carbon footprint. While fashion houses are waking up to this, developments in tech and comms are enabling action at the consumer end as well. Resale of items has become easier and more commonplace than ever before. But other companies are starting to branch out, offering garment rental or facilitating that transaction between fashionistas. Uh, Jamie Waters, Monocle's fashion editor, joins me now to tell us more. What do you make of all this, Jamie? Because this is a trend that we've talked about for some time. Um, And it's certainly something that's not going anywhere. Yeah, so, I mean, sustainability is one of those things that everyone generally is talking about. But it's, it's definitely like probably the major talking point in the fashion industry at the moment. And it's one of those terms that kind of can be used a lot and it can sometimes be a marketing ploy and there's not that much substance behind it. And I think... The, re- the, the boom of the resale market and the rental market is one of those interesting things because it really does mean something and it's a way that um, both companies and consumers can say, okay, we're still, we still love clothes or we're still part of the fashion industry, but we're actually doing something that is kind of reducing waste. It is having an impact on the, the kind of toxic effect that the, that the fashion industry can have. So I think it's one of the, it, yeah, it, it's, it's a very kind of practical thing that people can do and I think um, it's one of the positive ways that we can see the fashion industry actually addressing its its problems with waste. Uh, and I think you're right. There have been these accusations, charges of sort of so-called greenwashing in certain areas. But I wonder, is this being driven by more sustainability-minded consumers or uh, producers? Or is part of it, at least, or maybe the more attractive part, certainly from the consumer side, a simple you know, cost a simple cost advantage that they wouldn't have had before, or at least, I mean, that's going to be at least as much of a factor. Yeah, I think it's both. Uh, it's definitely both. I mean, I think we now think. I think a, a new generation of people are thinking about clothes in a really different way, and luxury clothes, especially. So, um, I think it used to be very, very much elite, and the idea of um, you know renting clothes from someone or buying, re- you know, buying secondhand clothes when we're talking about luxury brands, um, that just wasn't, wouldn't have been seen as a, a kind of covetable, attractive thing. Mm. And I think the industry has become democratised um, in a lot of ways. And I think for a few reasons, I mean, if we think about menswear, for instance, um, someone like Virgil Abloh being at Louis Vuitton, um, you know, someone like you know Kanye's involvement in the, in luxury fashion, um, you know, the, the boom of the streetwear industry, all, all that, what that's meant is it's, it's kind of opened up luxury clothes to a huge, a much wider demographic. So you get a lot of kids, um, a lot of guys who, you know, skater kids and stuff like that. And now they want to buy Louis Vuitton. So there's just a much broader demographic of people who are interested in clothes. So I think on that point, it means um, if, if you're the resale market and the rental market makes clothes much more, I mean, you ha- it's much e- uh, lower barrier to entry. So you know, it's offering this entry point for consumers. So I think that is a big part of it. I think the sustainability thing is massive. And I think we we can't really um, overestimate how important that is to mm. people now. It's it's this thing that so many people are like, I, I just don't want to buy. I want, to, I want new clothes because I love fashion, but I just don't want to keep getting, you know, each season drop after drop. So, so I think if you're buying it, if you're buying used items, but definitely it doesn't have that stigma anymore. I think there's something really, you know, in terms of recycling, reusing, all of those things are now just, I think it almost feels outdated to think that those are, Hmm. well, well, this is what I was going to ask you, because it's almost like what 
certainly, you know, high fashion or luxury items as a sort of status symbol. What that status is or what you're trying to broadcast to the world and wearing these garments maybe has changed. And that being a responsible consumer is a badge of honour to wear as much as saying, I can afford and I have the taste to have selected this garment. Are we having to recalibrate what a status or what what is that status we're trying to communicate by the apparel that we wear is it is that is, the, is there a fundamental redefinition of what that symbolically is do you think or is that a bit too philosophical cod philosophical no uh, yeah I, I think i think it's this thing of of the industry it seems a bit passe now to think oh i i just need the latest collection and i just need the newest things and i think that the industry is kind of it has, it's been forced to become more open to different ways of thinking, mm. more democratic, more available, available to more people. And as I say, like embracing this idea of of reducing its impact and being more, uh, more savvy and not as just not as exclusive. Because the the way that the industry is run, where if if it's just based on new trends and new collections, and there's no sort of embrace of reusing things or reducing waste and all that's that that system is kind of broken. Like, we, you know, people have caught on to the fact that it's just, it can't keep going like that. Um, and I think there's there's too many consumers now who are really, who are savvy and who are very interested in the environment, environmental impact of things. So I think, yeah, I, I think people think about luxury clothes in a very different way. And if you think about, I mean, Rent the, rent the Runway has been a big pioneer in terms of the rental market. Um, I think the resale market's super interesting because that is just massive. Um, Clothing online clothing resale has expanded twenty one times faster than regular retail um, in the past couple of years. So it's like massive now, mm. um, and we're seeing brand, uh, companies like the Real Real is opening all these big bricks and mortar locations in the US, very glossy boutiques, and they're selling you know very high end clothes. So it's still got that sheen of luxury and aspiration. It's not like this is very crafty, what we might think of as being sort of you know used clothing. It's still got that aspirational thing about it, but it doesn't have that guilt associated with it. And is that not enough? <laughs> Jamie looks very relieved mentioning that. Uh, Jamie, good to hear from you as always. That's Monocle's fashion editor, Jamie Waters, joining us here on Monocle's House View. Finally, on today's Monocle's House View, we look to Southern Europe, where a minor spat between Italy and France over one of the world's most famous images has exposed the raw, soft power manifested in objet d'art. Chiara Ramella, Monocle's culture editor, joins me now. Chiara, first, did you like the way I said objet d'art there? I really did, although uh, I've got to say, as an Italian, I was really hoping that you'd kind of come to me with a beautiful kind of Italian pronunciation or something. Well, give it time. Give it time. I've got other things up my sleeve. We're talking, though, about uh, Da Vinci, Vitruvian Man. Chiara, in short, what on earth's going on? Well, so this is a spat that's been going on for quite a while, and it used to be a lot more political, and now perhaps it's not quite so political anymore. Um, Italy and France obviously have some issues with regards to lending works to one another. Um, the Louvre, as we all know, holds the Mona Lisa, which is kind of the most famous Leonardo da Vinci painting ever. 
And the Louvre is planning a huge, huge exhibition uh, to celebrate the 500 years since uh, Leonardo's death um, because Leonardo did die in France and not in Italy. Um, And so they're trying to get works from all over the world, including Italy, naturally, where uh, plenty of Leonardo's uh, works are held. During the previous government, so the Lega five-star government, there was a genuine kind of political spat around this where uh, certain ministers and were, were not willing to give up Leonardo's works because they thought that this Louvre exhibition would clash with the celebration of Leonardo at home on, this, on such an important date. Right now, the government's changed. The culture minister is, again, the same culture minister that originally kind of negotiated the loan deal with the Louvre in the first instance. So we're talking, we're going back to 2017. Um, And yet, the Vitruvius man um, looks like it's not going to go to the Louvre. Uh, This time, we are told because um, the experts deem it too fragile a convenient be. piece of identified fragility at just the right moment to to stop it. It's it's still political, no? It could it could be. It couldn't. It could also not be because these works are generally really fragile. And what they're saying is that if it was exhibited for um, such a long time in the Louvre, it might have to be kept from view for the following decade. So. I generally think that Franceschini, who's the culture minister at the moment, is not opposed to the loan because he's the person who kind of spearheaded it in the first place. We may perhaps be a little bit too down the line at this stage, perhaps Mm. after all the pulling and and pushing to be able to say whether this is a real excuse or a political one. Um, Well, and just briefly on this idea of this being a political spat or otherwise, there are evidence that it sort of trickled down through fully into mass culture. And talking of battles between France and Italy, I gather that following as a World Cup, a footballing clash between these two superpowers, uh, the Italian fans, the Azzurri or the Ragazzi... I prefer Azzurri personally. Azzurri. um, Were not backward in making representations to their French counterparts having won in the football that they needed to win with the Mona Lisa as well. The Mona Lisa is just such a symbolic thing in terms of the opposition between France and Italy. It's 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 quite silly. It's obviously just a joke at this stage, but you know, it's 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 be it's it kind of has come to represent this this whole spat that centers on the figure of Leonardo, obviously a very very Italian artist by all means, but also kind of claimed by the French because of his latter fortunes. And so yes, even football fans had something to and say what about it. And what did they say? What did they say, Chiara? What did they sing? We've only got 60 <laughs> seconds left. Do you want me to actually break out song? I would quite like you to, yeah. E adesso ridacci la nostra gioconda perché siamo noi i campioni del mondo. È nostra, è nostra. And I did it with quite a nice voice because I could have done a football hooligan's voice. I don't believe I... you possess it. <laughs> I mean, whilst I did it in my dulcet tones. <laughs> Chiara, I'm just letting that sink in. That was beautiful. What a way to end the show. I feel we can't say anything else to top that. Chiara Miller, thank you very much. Monocle's culture editor, illuminating and with a song thrown in for good measure. What more can you want? Uh, that's your Monocle's house view for this Friday. It was produced by Augustin Machilari. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Coming up at 20 hundred hours London time, a brand new edition of The Menu. More delicious radio coming away a little later. This programme is back, of course, at the same time on Monday. That's 1800 here in London, as if you needed reminding. Uh, my name's Tom Edwards from me and all the rest of the team. Thank you very much for tuning in. <laughs> 